light of that prayer, I think all God's people can say, amen. All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 17. Now, as you turn there, I have a question for you that I want you to consider. What causes you to take someone's counsel? We all experience, we all receive counsel all the time. People, whether we asked for it or not, we get advice constantly. People telling us what we should do. And my question then for you is, what causes you to actually listen to follow the counsel that you get? I'd love to say that the basis of whether or not we listen is on whether or not it's good advice. That we receive all advice, we receive all counsel, and that we look at them all and we just evaluate it for what it is. But that's just not true. When it comes to counsel, we often care more about who is counseling than what they are counseling. We want to know whether the person counseling us is credible or not. We consider people and their counsel non-credible when they don't apply what they prescribe. If you went to, a doc- went to the doctor and the doctor's looking at your chart and he looks at the weight that you've gained and he looks at your cholesterol and he looks at your heart pressure and, and blood pressure and he says, man, you, you need to make some radical changes. But don't worry, I know exactly what you need to do. I have a plan for you. The likelihood of you actually listening to that counsel depends a lot on how healthy the doctor is who's talking to you. If this doctor is clearly an unhealthy individual, you're going to be like, yeah, doc, I'm not so sure you really know the advice. You really have a place to give me the counsel you're giving me. We consider people in their counsel non-credible when they don't actually care about you. It's the counsel you'd probably get from all those law firm advertisements. Injured? Call us. We care about you. They're going to give you counsel. It might be good counsel, but you're not sure because you really aren't sure if they care about you. We consider people in their counsel non credible when they don't really understand what we're going through. Someone says, oh, no, no, I know exactly what you need to do. I've gone through the same thing. You understand exactly? Because I, I was talking about issues that I'm having with my children, and you don't have any kids. Oh, no, 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 but, but one of my pets did the exact same thing. Listen, if you're going to equate owning a pet to parenting, I'm out, even if your advice was good. Obviously, those are more humorous examples, but when we truly face trials, it can be so hard when it seems the counsel we receive is from those who don't understand, even if their counsel is good. Contrast that counsel with the counsel we receive from someone we perceive as credible. Someone who understands, someone who has or has gone or is going through something similar, who applies what they prescribe, someone who truly cares about you. 
The person that comes to my mind and maybe comes to many of your minds was Pastor Don. When I was, I had the privilege of sitting under his counsel as he counseled others or even receiving counsel. And especially when it came to issues of sorrow and suffering, he had a voice that was credible. His voice was credible not just because of the word that he knew, but because of the life he had experienced. You felt confident because you knew not only was his counsel based on scripture, he had actually applied his counsel in his own life. You felt convicted to do what he said because you knew his counsel was for your good. He cared. You felt comforted because he understood he had been down similar and often more difficult paths. Here's the reality. When we perceive that the one who counsels is credible, it changes how we receive their counsel. If we're not sure if they're really credible, if we don't think they understand, if we don't think they care, if we don't think that they really get it, they're not going to do it themselves. We're just going to have a hard time following it ourselves. In the last several chapters of John, we have seen the disciples struggle. Ever since chapter 13, we've had a change in the book of John that this is Christ's private ministry with his disciples. He's preparing them to live for for him even when he is not physically with them. Christ has revealed some very difficult things for them. He's leaving. They're going to suffer. They will face great tribulations and trouble and persecution in Christ's name, and Jesus won't even be there with them physically. At the same time, Christ has given both counsel and commands for their good. He's told them what they need to do. Now, it should be obvious that counsel from Christ is always credible. That should be obvious to us. Of course this is good advice. Of course this is good counsel. Of course the commands are things for my good. But when it comes down to it, I wonder if the disciples didn't have their doubts. I wonder if at times they questioned the credibility of the counsel they received. The reason I wonder that is because I sometimes doubt the credibility of Christ's counsel. How often do we read Christ's counsel, the things that he commands, and we think, man, that's easy for you to say. You're not here. You left. It's easy to give that kind of counsel if you're God. It's a lot harder for me to follow. How often do we find Christ's counsel unreasonable? Is this really necessary? Is this what you would have me do while I'm already suffering? Do you really expect me to glorify God and produce fruit when I'm in this kind of pain, when I'm facing this kind of persecution? Do you really understand? You haven't faced what I'm facing. You haven't gone through this. You're God and you're up in heaven. How can you possibly understand the trials and tribulations I'm facing? I wonder if the disciples were feeling a little bit of that after they've heard all these things, all these hardships that Christ has told them is going to happen. And then they're looking at the counsel, the things that he's saying, this is for your good, this is for your comfort. And they're like, 
I don't know. If you've ever had any of those thoughts, if you've ever doubted the credibility of Christ's counsel, then our passage today is for you. Our passage is not an argument. Christ doesn't stand and defend himself. He doesn't say, look, here's all the things. Here's why you should listen. Christ demonstrates what he's doing. He gives an example to follow. Here's the big idea. See Christ's glory as he glorified the Father even in his hardest hour. What I want us to do is see Christ. I want us to see what Christ is doing. See Christ's glory as he glorified the Father even in his hardest hour. If you're in the habit of taking notes, I want you to at, write something in your handout up in the top corner. This, this is the goal that we have for this morning. I want you to write three words. Confidence, conviction, comfort. That's our goal for this morning. Confidence, conviction, comfort. I want us to have confidence because we have a Savior who applied to himself what he prescribed for his followers. We know his counsel works. We can have confidence in it because it's what he himself did. I want us to have conviction because we, even though we often disregard his counsel and commands, but if he himself did it, who are we to do otherwise? I want us to be comforted because we have a Savior who understands, who has gone through things far harder than what we could have ever gone through, and yet he did what he told us to do. Counsel, conviction, comfort. So let's start out. Let's look at the first part of verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. Remember I said earlier that Jesus has given a lot of counsel to his disciples. One of the main things he has counseled them is to turn to the Father in prayer. In fact, this is something that five times in the last few chapters in this moment of private ministry with his disciples five times he's told them to turn to prayer john 14 verse 13 says this whatever you ask in my name this i will do that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask me anything in my name i will do it john 15 7 if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 16, verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive it that your joy may be full. Finally, John 16, verses 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not, ask, uh, do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Yeah, Christ has told them some hard things, but then he gives this comfort. Ask. Turn to the Father in prayer. What you ask, if you ask in my name, if you ask according to my words, it will be given to you. There's a confidence in that. There's a comfort in that. 
for Christ to repeat this five times in so few chapters on his last night with his disciples, in his final moments of his, his private ministry, do we think it's important for him to say it five times? But it's not just in the repetition that we see it's important. We know it's important because Christ himself used it. Jesus practiced what he preached. What confidence do we have? What credibility does a person have if they keep telling you, this is what you need to do, 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 and yet they never do it themselves? But the fact that Christ says continually, this is what you need, and then in his moment, he does the same, gives us a confidence that this truly is what we need. Here's my question. If Jesus himself turned to the Father in prayer, who are we to turn away from him? Have we made prayer a priority in our life the way Christ did in his. If there was anyone that we could look at in history and say, all right, if we had to pick one person that we think probably doesn't need prayer, doesn't need to pray like everyone else, who would that be? Jesus. And yet, who do we see continually going to the Father in prayer? Jesus. Christ begins his prayer, Father. We can do the same. This is the privilege we have in Christ. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the privilege we have in Christ. This is why Christ keeps telling them, Turn to the Father in prayer. This is your privilege. And it wasn't a privilege that Christ neglected. It was a privilege that Christ continually turned to. But our confidence, our conviction, our comfort is not just that Christ prayed. It is also found in the content of his prayer. Look at the second part of verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I think the temptation here is to jump straight to Christ's request. What does he ask for? That's the part that we often want to jump to in our own prayers. Let's get to the part where we can ask for things. But look what he says at the beginning. These five words that far surpass our comprehension. Father, the hour has come. When Jesus said the hour has come, He's not talking about some random hour. He's not just talking about the literal 60 minutes that he's at right then and start the timer and we'll go forward from there. He is talking about this moment in time. This moment in redemptive history. It is not a hour. It is the hour. In all of human history, there has been no greater moment. You can think of any event, whether it was a crowning achievement 
in our history, like walking on the moon. It could be the signing of a peace treaty that ended a world war. It could be the invention of some technology, the eradication of a disease. No matter what moment you can think of, it pales in comparison to this moment. You can think of any moment in Scripture. You can go back and think of all of the amazing miracles, the feeding of 5,000, the things that Christ did in the Old Testament. You can even go back to the creation of the world, and it is not the moment. This is the hour. It is the hour that everything has been building up to. The anticipation for this moment has been building beyond Christ's final week. It's been building beyond Christ's three years of public ministry. It's been building beyond Christ's life on earth. It's been building beyond the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. It's been building even beyond all of human history. This is the moment that even before time began, God in his sovereignty knew was coming and prepared for. Imagine the tension and anticipation that everything has been building to this moment, that Christ understands the magnitude of this hour, and he comes to this moment and he says, Father, the hour has come. Why is it that this hour brings such anticipation? Because it is the hour in which the Son of Man is glorified. It is the hour in which the debt of sin is to be paid. It is the hour in which death is dealt its fatal blow. It is the hour when darkness will be conquered. It is the hour in which Christ supplies the remedy for the curse of the fall and of sin. It is the hour in which the elect are redeemed. It is the hour that is the climax of God's great redemptive story. This is that moment. But when Christ says the hour has come, there is no more glorious hour. But understand this, when Christ says the hour has come, there is no more painful hour. This is the hour of his suffering. This is the hour of his sorrow and shame. This is the hour when the one who knew no sin became sin for us. This is the hour when the cup of wrath was not removed but drunk in full. This is the hour when Christ, the perfect sacrificial lamb, was killed, where his blood was spilled. Yes, Christ knows that this is the glorious hour when God's conquering light will shine, but he also knows that the path of glory lies through the dark grave of sorrow, shame, and sacrifice. We need to understand that this is the backdrop of Christ's prayer. Christ is not practicing what he preached in a laissez-faire moment. He doesn't care. He's just doing his own thing. Everything's going great. And Jesus is like, you know what? Let's take some moments to pray. This is a nice walk we're going on. Let me talk to you about prayer. There are different moments in the Gospels in which the path of the disciples and the path of Christ are, are very different. There are moments in which the disciples are weeping while Christ is sleeping. 
There are moments in which Christ is weeping while his disciples were sleeping. But right now, there is a parallel in moments where these disciples are scared. They have sorrow. They don't know what's going on. They are troubled. And yet there is a parallel in that Christ himself is troubled. That there is a weight in this moment. And what does he do? He practices what he preached. He prays to the Father. But what does he pray? What is the thing that he does? He pursues his primary purpose. What he asks for in, the light, in light of the weight and hardship of the moment, in light of the trial and tribulation, what Christ asks for is that he would accomplish his purpose. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now you might look at that and say, well, I'm not so sure about that. It seems more like he's praying for personal glory. But look closely. Yes, he asks the Father to glorify the Son, but why? That the Son may glorify the Father. The reason he asks for glory from the Father is because it is necessary in order for him to fulfill the purpose that God has given him. Jesus understood what his purpose was and he pursued it. In John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, we're going to look at that a few times. It says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Should I say that? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In his greatest trial, Christ prays to the Father to ask that he might accomplish his purpose. That's incredible. It's also convicting. If you knew what was about to come, if you knew you were to experience even a sliver of the suffering and sorrow that Christ was about to experience, what would your first response be? What pray, prayer would you pray? What would you ask of the Father? Would your prayer be to accomplish your purpose? Would your prayer be that the Father would be glorified? I'll be honest, I know it's not what I'd pray for. The reason I know that is because it's what I haven't prayed for. The moments in which I face trials and tribulations, which are nothing compared to the hour that Christ is facing, and yet my prayers are all, just get me out of this. Take it away. And yet Christ doesn't pray that. Christ says, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify When we face trials, how, how often is our first response to pray for escape? How often do we pray for ease? How often do we pray, Father, use this so that you might be glorified through this? That's Christ's prayer. God, allow me to accomplish my purpose. I am here for your glory. Is that unique to Christ? Is Christ the only one who came to glorify the Father? No. 
That is all of our purpose. Our purpose. We were created for God's glory. That means that whatever you face, whatever trial, whatever tribulation, your purpose in that moment is to glorify the Father. That should be your prayer. And it's Christ's prayer. Glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. Yes, prayer is a privilege, but it also has a purpose. We are meant to pray and ask for what truly matters. We must pray like Christ that we would accomplish our purpose. See Christ's glory as he glorified the Father even in his hardest hour. But the other thing that we see in this verse, because that's what convicts us, is also the comfort Jesus prayed for what had already been promised. Again, look at John 12, verse 27. I want you to notice all the parallels between those verses and the ones that we're in. Now is my soul troubled. This is John 12, 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. All of the things that Jesus is now praying are things that the Father has already promised. Now, there's two ways for us to interpret that. The wrong way would be to look at this and say Jesus is praying in doubt. He doesn't really believe what the Father said in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 28. The Father has already said, I will glorify it. I have glorified it. But now Jesus is asking again. And if he's asking again, that's probably because he doubts it's going to happen. That's the wrong way to see this. Jesus is not praying out of doubt. Jesus is praying in submission. He's praying with confidence. He's praying with total dependence on the Father. Jesus isn't asking again just to make sure the Father hasn't forgotten. He's not praying the Father's promises to say, God, you better remember this. He's praying the Father's promises for his own comfort. We see Christ's humanity here. In this hardest hour, he goes back to the things that the Father has promised. Those are his foundation. He's praying the Father's promises to align his will with the Father's. He's praying with confidence, knowing that the Father will say yes, because he is praying the very words of the Father. What confidence Christ must have had in that moment to pray something that the Father has already promised. Within a few moments after this prayer, Christ will pray again in the garden and he, and he will say, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is not a walk in the park. Christ is bearing a weight we cannot even fathom. But what does he say after that? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Even now, Jesus is, is making sure he is confirming how his will is aligning with the Father's will by praying what the Father has promised. This is the pr power of prayer. 
this is why Jesus tells his disciples, pray. If my words abide in you, everything that you ask will come to happen. Pray according to my will. Align yourself with me. That's the power you have. See, the power of prayer is that more often than changing everything around us, prayer changes us. More than changing our circumstances, it changes our perspective. When we pray the promises of God, we know these things will come to be. It's not a question. If we know they will come to be, we will then align our expectations to those things. Don't get me wrong. We can pray for the unknown. We can pray for change. We can pray about circumstances. But here's my question. What is the proportion that we do that? What is the proportion of our prayer in praying for the known versus the unknown? How much of our prayer is all of these things that I don't know, I'm not sure if it's your desire, but here are my desires, compared to how much of our prayer are, these are what you have promised. These are the things that you have said. These are the things that will happen. What way do we want to order our life? On the things that might happen or on the things that we know will happen? We order our life the way that Christ did. He prayed for the things he knew would happen. He aligned himself with the things he knew would happen. Personally, I find that much of my prayer is praying for the things I don't know. And that's okay. The problem is that I often neglect to pray for what is known. I neglect to pray the promises of God. The, promise, the problem with that is that in neglecting to pray God's promises, I neglect to align my heart with his. When I pray my own thoughts, it's precisely that, my own thoughts. But when I pray his promises, my prayers are his thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Just this week, I've been trying to do that, and, and, and you know what's amazing? It's amazing how much my perspective has changed more than my circumstances. Father, Christ said I would face great tribulations in this world, but Christ also said to take heart, for he has overcome the world. Father, let me glorify you by taking confidence in Christ's victory. Father, you promised all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your, to your purpose. Father, you promised that all things work together, and I don't see how this will work for good, but I choose to trust you. Use this trial and my response to it for your glory. The power we have in Christ is that the promises of God are afforded to us. We can pray the promises of Scripture because we are in Christ. Jesus trusted the Father's promises, so who are we to doubt them? See Christ's glory as he glorified the Father even in his hardest hour. But now let's look at the basis of his request. What reason does he give that the Father should do this? 
Look at verses 2 through 4. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 2 begins with that word, since. Jesus is giving the basis for his request. He's saying, this is why I asked what I asked. When within Christ's prayer, we see the theme of John revealed. In John 20, verse 31, it says this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Over and over, we have seen Christ call people to believe. Why? Because this is what the Father sent him to do. The Father gave authority to the Son over all flesh in order that the Son would give eternal life to the ones the Father chose. Jesus explains what the eternal life truly is that he came to give. He says in verse 3, And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, here's how I think we normally understand this verse, that Jesus is describing what is required for us to have eternal life. How do we enter into eternal life? We do so by knowing the Father and knowing the Son, and that's true. Jesus said in chapter 10, I am the door. In chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also said in chapter 14 that if you, we knew him, we would know the Father. What that means is if we don't, do not know Jesus, we do not know the Father, and it means if we do not know the Father, we do not have eternal life. This is what is necessary for us to have eternal life. But there's more to it than just entrance into eternal life. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you. Think back to the fall, and I'm going to keep my distance from this thing. Think back to the fall. The punishment that Christ said would come from sin. Death and separation. In that moment when humanity rebelled against God, the relationship was torn apart. That which was holy could not be close to that which was unholy. What we had in that moment is the knowledge that the people that Adam and Eve experienced with the Father was removed. Death entered the world, and that death was separation. And if nothing changed, it would mean eternally being separated, eternally not knowing the Father. If that's death, if that's the curse, what then is life? Life is knowing him. Life would be humanity's relationship restored. Life would be an eternity, not of just never dying, but finally living in the way we were created to live. Life would be knowing the only 
true God. This is what Christ came to make possible. The reason he came to this hour, this moment of trial and tribulation, was to redeem humanity. All of this is only possible because of what Christ accomplished. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus did the work the Father gave him. In John 3, the Father sends the Son in order to save the world. Brothers and sisters, behold our glorious Christ. Behold the one who accomplished the work the Father gave him. Behold the one in whom we believe and are given eternal life. This is the work Christ has done. But remember, Jesus is saying all of this as the basis of his request. How so? How does this provide a foundation for his request? Because his petition is according to the Father's plan. I want you to notice the repetition in these verses. Verse 2, since you have given him authority. The end of verse 2, to all whom you have given him. End of verse 3, Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You have given, you have given, you have sent the work that you gave me to do. All of this is the basis. This is your plan. Again, we could read this the wrong way. The wrong way is to see this as Jesus manipulating the Father. He could be saying, do you see all that I've done for you? You better now do what I'm asking. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is demonstrating the merit of his request by demonstrating that he understands and has submitted to the Father's plan. I do what the Father has commanded. Rather than manipulating the Father, Jesus is saying, I'm asking because this is necessary for your plan to be accomplished. Jesus is demonstrating that he is totally aligned with the Father. Jesus tempered his request according to the Father's plan. I'll tell you right now, this is something I think we all struggle with. Here's why. Because we don't know our purpose and we don't know the Father's plan. The problem is, the reason we don't know isn't because he hasn't told us, but because we find different purposes and follow different plans. What difference would it make if our prayers and petitions were based on an intimate knowledge and pursuit of our purpose in the Father's plan? What if we prayed like Jesus to accomplish, accomplish our purpose and then we base that re request on the foundation of the Father's plan? Here's the wonderful thing. When we know our purpose and the Father's plan, it tempers our request. All of the sudden, those prayers that we are so... Uh, often turning to, dear Jesus, thank you for this day, thank you for this food, please help me have a good day and let nothing bad happen. Amen. All of a sudden, when you understand your purpose, you understand the Father's plan, those prayers kind of get relegated. Father, th this is the purpose that I have. I am asking that I would glorify you. Father, the reason I ask that is because I understand that what you created me to do was to glorify you in all things. And so the reason I ask that is that you would give me boldness and confidence as I go and confront this persecution because I want to glorify you in all things. 
The basis of our request should be the Father's plan. Now, you might be thinking right now, I don't know what the plan is. I don't know what the purpose is. I've got great news for you. We're going to see that next week. This is just the first part of Christ's prayer. The next part of his prayer is for his disciples. The final part of his prayer is for the church. He's going to pray for us. And in praying for us, he's going to reveal the Father's plan, and he's going to reveal our purpose. So that then we can know this is what we should be praying for because this is what Christ prayed for me for. See Christ's glory as he glorified the Father even in his hardest hour. Jesus petitioned according to the Father's plan. But now I want to see in the last verse that Jesus prized the Father's presence. In verse 5 it says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. After giving the basis of his request, Jesus reiterates his request. Father, glorify me. Understand this. Jesus is not requesting the glory of the Father's presence because that would be nice. This is necessary. Within God's great story of redemption, it is God who accomplishes it. He accomplishes it in himself through the Trinity. We have seen in the Gospel of John the work of Christ, that the Father sent the Son to do this. In the last chapters, we've seen the work of the Spirit, that the Spirit dwells within us, that the Spirit seals us. We've already seen that this is all according to the Father's sovereign plan, but now Christ is also asking for the other part. Father, glorify me. I have done the work that you sent me to do. I have accomplished what was necessary. So, Father, do your part. It is necessary. What would have happened if Christ had done all of the things here on earth and yet the Father refused to glorify him? It would have been futile. It would have been a failure. But that's not what, Christ, what happened, and Christ knew it would not happen. His confidence was in the Father who would glorify him. Jesus asked for what was necessary, but Jesus also is asking for that which gives him comfort. He's looking forward to the prize. He's looking ahead. He knows what lies in his immediate future. He knows how hard the hour will be, but he also knows the future glory that awaits him. This is the hour of glorification that includes his death. This is what Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew what the result was going to be. Father, glorify me in your presence. The blessing for us is that Christ gives the same comfort to his disciples. He gave that promise to Peter in chapter 13. Simon Peter said to me, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. In the next chapter, he gives, this, gives the same promises to the other disciples. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
This is the confidence of the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christ asked for what was necessary, but he also had his eyes on the prize. Even in his hardest hour, Christ's perspective was not on the pain, but the promise of the Father's presence. So where are our eyes? What is our perspective? Do we experience the same confidence and comfort as Christ when facing persecution? Do we look at what has been promised? What lies in our future? Or all is the only thing we can see, the pain and persecution that we are facing right now? Take heart. I have overcome the world. I'm coming back. I will take you with me. The final point is that Jesus had peace in the face of persecution. And this is an argument that you don't often want to do, but I think is valid here because it's an argument out of context, not meaning out of context, from context, and an argument from a, uh, out of omission. See, this is Christ's hardest hour. What don't we find in his prayer? There's no panic. Is he troubled? Yes. We saw in chapter 12 he's troubled because this is a true battle. There will be real casualties. The pain Christ will encounter is far beyond what we can comprehend. The sacrifice he will make is greater than what we can understand. There is trouble. There is a weight. But is he defeated? No. Heaven's champion stands on the front lines of battle and he is at peace. Not in, at peace because there's no battle to be fought. At peace because he is confident. He does not run away. He doesn't ask for something else to happen. He asks the Father to help him accomplish the task at hand. We see his peace in what he doesn't ask. We also see his peace within the context. What did Jesus just tell them? What was the last thing he said in verse 33 of chapter 16? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If Christ said, I have done all of these things so that you would have peace, and all we saw from him was panic, what confidence does that give us? But the fact that he was facing a battle far greater than we will ever face, and yet he did it with peace, gives us immense confidence. This is the promise of John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let neither let them be afraid. I'm giving you my peace. The peace that we see from Christ in his prayer is the peace that he gives to us. We will have trials. We will have tribulations. But we can face those with the peace that surpasses understanding when we follow the counsel of Christ. See Christ's glory as he glorified the Father even in his hardest hour. Brother and sister, you who are weary, you who are in sorrow, you whose heart is troubled, you who are fearful of persecution, you who question if Christ's commands and counsel are worthy to be followed, look up from your struggles and see your Savior.
See your Savior who faced trials and tribulations far greater than we could ever face, and yet he practiced what he preached as he prayed to the Father. See your Savior who did not run from the trial in his hardest hour, but rather who unwaveringly pursued his purpose. See your Savior who did not plea for ease and comfort, but rather prayed for what the Father had already promised. See your Savior whose basis of all his requests was not his own desires or self-perceived purposes, but rather he petitioned according to the purposes and plans the Father had ordained. See your Savior who endured his trials and tribulations because of the prize that was set before him, who is even now seated at the right hand of the Father. See your Savior who did not panic at his plight when persecution arose, but instead walked in peace, planted firmly on the foundation of the Father. Brothers and sisters, behold the glorious Christ. Follow the Lord's counsel in the confidence that he himself does the same. Obey Christ's commands with the conviction that he does not ask us to do anything he did not do himself. Be comforted in our Savior who walked through history's hardest hour and yet transformed it into the most glorious moment. See Christ's glory as he glorified the Father even in his hardest hour.